Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, violence erupts in Khartoum, Sudan. What will this mean for the country's political transition? Ugandan President Museveni's actions are increasing the risk of greater political instability. Is it time to rethink Uganda's trajectory? Plus, we are pleased to share our first episode in partnership with African Arguments. What are the key ingredients for a successful political transition to a democratic, civilian-run government? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Following four months of protests, the Sudanese military on 11 April 2019 ousted longtime ruler and ICC indictee Omar al-Bashir. In their intervening months, there's been negotiations and strikes, protests, and now violence, including on the day of our recording on 3 June, where we saw at least 30 people die uh, when the military started shooting at the protesters. Dozens were killed as protesters dodged live gunfire. The main opposition group accused the military of committing a massacre. Of course, all of this is over the future of Sudan's government. The protesters want a civilian-led process, while the transitional military council wants to remain in the driver's seat. How will this play out? What are the key factors shaping this critical moment in Sudan? Joining me to talk about the Sudanese uprising and its current political transition is Johnny Carson, who is a senior advisor at the U.S. Institute of Peace, former Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, former ambassador to Kenya, Zimbabwe, and Uganda. And there's a lot more of incredibly impressive titles that I could run through, but we only have 30 minutes or so. Uh, also is Allison Lombardo, a former director for Sudan and South Sudan at the National Security Council. Allison also worked on these issues at State and USAID. And finally, Fatan Agad, a international consultant and advisor on international negotiations. Allison, we discussed Sudan back in February, and we highlighted a couple factors that I think actually proved to be quite pivotal. They were the resiliency of the protesters, the pivotal role of the military, and how the Gulf states may seek to shape the outcome. Can you bring us up to speed? You know, who are the key actors here? What are their objectives? What leverage do they have? So, Judd, as you mentioned, this morning there was some tragic news out of Sudan because tensions have been heating up. So the protesters have been able to sustain their protests through Ramadan over the last several months. Uh, and the Transitional Military Council has also been doing their own work uh, to go around the region and solicit both financial contributions and political support from both Gulf and regional leaders. So tensions have been rising as negotiations broke down about two weeks ago over the length of the transition and the ultimate kind of power structure and decision-making structure of who would govern Sudan during a transitional period. So what we're seeing now is that the protesters are saying they're staying until the military agrees to a civilian-led government. And the uh, regime, or what is now morphed from the regime to the Transitional Military Council, is saying there's uh, no negotiating with these folks on the street. So they're calling them a danger and a threat. Uh, they're using language like we saw in Egypt when they're talking about the radicalization of the protest movement. And uh, they're also using force. 
So on the military side, what you see is two groups, the Rapid Support Forces, uh, run by Hameti, who is a former Janjaweed leader who has now uh, come into Khartoum and, and made the regional rounds, taking pictures with Gulf leaders uh, with his uniform on and saying, I'm bringing stability to Sudan. And he's losing patience and uh, strengthening his position. At the same time, you see the protesters on the street. The coalition continues to stay intact. There are many groups, uh, the Sudan professionals association the former or the political parties in Sudan um, and while they are uh, debating how uh, the transition should go they are staying united and I think with this escalation of violence the stakes are going to raise on both sides has the stalemate broken I mean this violence is a, a, to a new dynamic that you know may weaken any credibility or legitimacy the TMC had initially but it also could weaken the resolve of the protesters. Like, what's your you know hot yeah. take on what's happened this morning? So what you see this morning is a call for a general strike and civil disobedience throughout Sudan, and you see that starting to happen in response to the violence. So at this point, the protesters have really proven their mettle by holding strong for uh, this many months and through Ramadan. And I think the violence is really um, answering the question of whether the TMC is serious about a transition. And what, the, what many Sudanese are saying is this is more of the same. Actually, this is worse. Look at this violence. And I think, frankly, that's going to strengthen them for the months to come. However, I think the risk is that um, th the uh, TMC has made a decision to use force. And now are they willing to step back from that if the protesters also say, we're going to continue to sit here? Ambassador Carson, it brings a question about where the United States is in all of this. Allison alluded to the role of the Gulf states pledging a $3 billion aid package, uh, in cash injections, transfer of cheap food. Hameti went around the region to try to sort of uh, capture some more legitimacy. And you know, my view is that the Gulf has been and will be a key player in Sudan, but the United States plays this key role as a counterweight. And you know, you're not on the hot seat anymore, but if you were, what what is the way the U.S. can help shape this so we can have the outcome that I think the Sudanese people want, which is civilian-led government and democracy? I think that the uh, situation in uh, Sudan is now starting to flow uh, inexorably uh, in the direction of the military. Uh, and the hardline uh, military, as Allison has pointed out, and in fact, it uh, may be uh, too late uh, for uh, U.S. and Western and principal democratic diplomacy to step in in support of a democratic transition uh, that would lead Sudan away from the 30 years of military government uh, that uh, it has experienced. Uh, if, in fact, the situation uh, were slightly different globally, uh, in Washington, uh, in Europe, and the Middle East, I would say that the United States could do uh, any number of things. Uh, everything from stepping uh, up uh, its uh, public uh, rhetoric on the situation, engaging in active uh, regional and international uh, diplomacy, uh, meet, meeting and talking directly uh, with uh, the, the leaders uh, in the military, trying to uh, reassure uh, the civilians uh, on the street that uh, the U.S. supports a, a real civilian democratic transition 
and underscoring to the military that it is opposed, absolutely opposed to a continuation of authoritarian and dictatorial uh, rule, and also splitting uh, the military away. Uh, I think, uh, unfortunately, uh, because uh, there is an absence uh, of uh, commitment uh, and interest uh, in Europe uh, and in Washington on this subject, the situation has drifted. And I think uh, that uh, uh, Hamati uh, and the more radical elements uh, inside of Khartoum believe now strongly uh, that they can undertake the kinds of cleansing uh, of the uh, civilian population uh, that has occurred uh, in the last uh, 24 hours. Uh, this is not just uh, a uh, military council and a military government. This is a criminal uh, military syndicate uh, uh, with vested interests, both politically, economically, and in the security realm. They do not want to give it up. All of these individuals have been brought up under uh, Bashir uh, and the uh, military uh, government that he has had in place for the last uh, three decades, uh, and it is difficult to see uh, now uh, them pulling back unless there is a reemergence of Western commitment to trying to uh, push forward or. Uh, the notion of democratic values uh, and a democratic transition. I, I couldn't agree more. I think your prescription is absolutely right. And and I think the next 24 hours is going to be critical. If we stay on the sidelines, if we don't convene all of the key players that you mentioned, Ambassador Carson, I think we are, we've pretty much given up the game. I mean, Allison, is there anything you'd add to that? You already see the United States and the UK and others out condemning the violence, uh, but I think that's not enough. And I think that's, as Ambassador Carson was saying, that the challenge is um, you have Hameti sitting with Mohammed bin Salman, pictures out on Twitter. I mean, there is a message. And unless the United States and others are willing to kind of engage in that, um, you're not playing at the same level of the game. And so they, uh, the Transitional Military Council made the decision already um, that they've been able to capture the Gulf states and they can continue to do what they're doing. I mean, I don't see a region that is more important right now between Ethiopia and Sudan for our, our engagement. I mean, what's happening in these countries in this region are transformative. And I just can't get my head around why we're not seeing that urgency from our, from our government to really try to shape with the region, with international partners. Yeah. Fatan, let me bring you in because I know your experience is Algeria, but I think there's an argument that what's happening in Sudan and Algeria are it's really in dialogue with each other. And there's we'll talk a little more about these similarities as we move to the deep dive, but are there any things that that we should be watching that you can draw from your own observations of the Algeria uh, case study? Yeah, I think I think you said it. You said it well, Jude. I think the two Algerians are watching certainly what's happening in uh, in Sudan and before Sudan was also watching what's happening in Algeria. But I think to me, the key questions now moving forward is to what degree will the population remain resilient and united? And I think the more you have some, I would say, isolated elements uh, uh, that are drifting apart from the rest, the easier uh, they become, the quicker they become a target to this type of regime. So that is, that is certainly one, one aspect that we need to, to watch moving, uh, moving forward. The other question is, 
um, with what happened. I mean, we already hear that uh, from the side of civil society, um, there is a, a rejection of going back to the negotiating table. And, um, you know, that will further deepen uh, the deadlock that we have. Um, so what conditions could be put in place? And there, perhaps the role of, of, of international partners uh, uh, through the exercise of certain pressure may force the military to, to concede uh, and, and offer certain uh, uh, conditions that would allow uh, the representatives of the opposition to come back uh, to, the, to the table. I'm afraid that the military will be given a carte blanche uh, to keep doing what, what they're doing. We can come back to it later, but I think the timing of international interventions now uh, may be a bit more appropriate than it was before. One of the challenges is that this episode is going to air uh, a week after the events. So we're going to be a little behind the story, but I think all the things that Ambassador Carson and Allison and, and, and Fatin you've mentioned are, are important for analysts and observers to think about. And retrospectively, did we get it right? I want to move to Uganda. I'm increasingly concerned about this country's trajectory. Museveni, the, the president, has been in power since 1986, recently removed constitutional age limits so he can run again in 2021. Members of parliament from Uganda's ruling party on Sunday adopted a resolution allowing President Yoweri Museveni to seek another term of office. And meanwhile, he's cracking down on the opposition, including our guest from episode one, Bobby Wine. They've imposed a social media tax to, as they say, tame gossip in idle talk. The economy is still growing, uh, but the World Bank is increasingly worried about the debt it's taking on. And as we discussed in episode 11, Rwanda and Uganda are still engaged in this very dangerous border tiff, uh, which already has hurt trade and resulted in a couple of deaths. So, Johnny, you are a former ambassador to Uganda. You know this country and President Museveni very well. I think you share my anxiety about where the country is going. Um, feel free to disagree, but how bad are things in Uganda? How could this all end? It's clear that uh, President uh, Museveni uh, wants to uh, continue uh, in power indefinitely. Uh, and uh, the uh, trail of uh, events over the last uh, 10 or 15 years, uh, including most recently, are indications of this. Uh, eliminating uh, first the uh, two-term presidential uh, limit, then removing uh, presidential age uh, limitations, uh, and clearly not putting in place any kind of a uh, succession uh, pattern. Uh, President Museveni is clearly one of the most astute uh, uh, political observers uh, uh, in Africa and, and East Africa, and he is clearly aware uh, of what is in fact happening uh, next door uh, in Khartoum, uh, aware of what's happened uh, in uh, Algeria, uh, both with Bashir uh, and with uh, Bouteflika. Uh, he knows uh, that he has to uh, keep uh, a uh, close eye on uh, his uh, opposition. Uh, and Bobby Wine uh, is just the latest uh, of the uh, high-level opposition that he's faced. I think uh, by uh, uh, arresting, uh, harassing, uh, and intimidating uh, Bobby Wine, uh, keeping uh, him uh, off the streets, 
uh, keeping him under house arrest, uh, moving uh, him in and out of uh, court, uh, and preventing him from dispersing and organizing uh, prevents the kind of mass mobilization uh, that has occurred in Khartoum uh, and that has occurred uh, in uh, Algeria. And he's very, very much uh, aware of this uh, and uh, wants to uh, stop it uh, before it ever gets uh, started. It just seems to me there's such a high risk of miscalculation and misreading um, of the the sentiment on the street, the cohesion within Museveni's party, NRM. And I wonder, Fatsen, some of this has to rhyme with the experiences in Algeria, right? A ruler who is outside is welcome, tensions with neighbors, at least some evidence of resistance from civil society and opposition. Um, building on Ambassador Carson's points, are there other uh, things and elements, dynamics that we should be thinking about in the Uganda case? Yeah, I mean, obviously, each country context is unique. So I think I'll, 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 we need to take that into account. But looking looking at Algeria, I think the key lesson from there is that, you know, these ailing presidents are resilient because of the system they built around themselves. And Butrika, for instance, ensured that different components of the system always spoke to him. I think the question is, for how long will uh, President Museveni be able to hold that equilibrium? I think the fact that he's trying to be creative uh, around this issue of the constitution on whether that would allow him to stay on and attempt to put certain bills through the parliament are a clear indication that um, that balance and the control that he had might not be fully uh, there anymore. So um, I think the, the, the story of President Museveni will uh, certainly unfold ahead of the elections and we might see certain uh, uh, challenges emerging uh, potentially from within his party. I guess for me, um, I think that we too often miss the signs that a system is overheating until it's too late. Right. And then we look back and we say, of course, President Bashir fell from power. Of course <laughs> that the system couldn't hold in Algeria. Uh, but it's very hard for us to do that in the moment. And as a former analyst, you know, the easiest call, Johnny is a, a share, had the, the, the position of NIO before I did, you know, muddle through is the analyst's favorite position. Don't worry, the system will hold. And I just think that you know, governments are stable until they're not. The system works until it doesn't. And I think in Uganda, there's this additional point, right? This is a key you know, security partner for the United States and development partner as well. And I think that makes us even more hesitant to call out Museveni and some of the problems that we are seeing because we want the partnership in Somalia. We want some of the progress on some of the development issues. So, Allison, I'm going to give you a chance since you and I don't work for government anymore. Like, what should we be doing? Like, yeah. you lay it all out on the table for us. Yeah. Uh, Judd, I think I think you're exactly right. So we don't know when uh, the system is going to end, but we know it will end. So there's no reason not to, starting now, the U.S. should evaluate its Uganda strategy and should appropriately value the relationship and make some predictions about where this relationship is going. So I think it's clear that Museveni cannot deliver anymore in the region like he used to, and that should be evaluated specifically in South Sudan, in Somalia, with the LRA, and more broadly um, with the Gulf and Asia and others that he's influencing. And I also think um, we need to really think about um, 
what's coming. So I would say the U.S. government should do three things. So one, uh, as Ambassador Carson said, there are some likely plays coming ahead in this playbook. We know that the term limits have been extended, that the age limit is gone, that there's going to be constitutional plays, as Fatin said. Uh, maybe there's a new security threat of idle language. There's a state of emergency. There's buy-offs. Um, the U.S. should not play into those kind of fallacies that are, go that are coming and should anticipate them and get ahead of them. And then second, I think um, this is the time to begin investing and diversifying domestically. So not only the opposition, but other players, there's a new generation, there are new um, influences coming up from the developing world or the development world um, from rural areas and get out there and let's diversify. And then third, I would say the same regionally. So uh, as I noted, Museveni is not delivering and should not be relied on to deliver. So the United States should be looking for other partners who have more aligned interests in the region. There's an important point that you mentioned. Not only do we sometimes not want to see or admit that there are some real fragility in these countries, but we almost never want to develop a contingency plan. And that's just good practice, right? Like what if our assumptions are wrong, and if there's a different pathway, how should we position ourselves to be prepared for that eventuality? I want to transition to our deep dive for today. This is our first episode uh, in partnership with African Arguments. For our listeners, African Arguments is an essential resource. It is a pan-African platform for news, investigation of opinions. I am regularly looking at their website and reading their work. Johnny, you've done some op-eds for them, I, I believe. I have indeed. Um, <laughs> and you know, it's a privilege to be able to showcase and engage with the African arguments researchers and thinkers, and we've got some great guests lined up over over the next year, but I couldn't be more pleased to have Fatin here as our first African Arguments author. Her piece, Algeria Protests, Buddha Flexit, Complete, Now What, is a really, it's a great piece, and I think it gives us an opening to talk about transitions in Africa. So this podcast is almost always about sub-Saharan Africa, so Fatin, you may have to give us a, an elevator brief on what has happened in Algeria and where are we now. So Bouteflika became president of Algeria in 1999. Uh, he changed the constitution in the meantime to allow him to stay on. Uh, there was rumors that he would like to go for a fifth term. And for the population, that was rather unacceptable. He had uh, a stroke in 2013. He was not mobile. He hasn't spoken to, hasn't given any public uh, public speech for, for years. Uh, so he was by large an absent president. So when the news came up in uh, came out on the 10th of February that uh, he will be running for a fifth term uh, for the elections that were at the time scheduled for April um, very quickly people started uh, protesting because that pressure then also had an impact on the support base of of large supporters of Bouteflika including the trade unions and and, and some large businesses um, then these structures that have been carrying him to go then for a fifth term started slowly crumbling because of the pressure on their base and we started seeing them uh, pulling out their support. Um, but the last push really came, I would say, from the chief of army, which 
who then made their public statement calling for the uh, impeachment of, of Bouteflika. That was on the 1st of April. On the 2nd of April, we saw um, the Bouteflika put out a statement uh, that he would be uh, pulling out. And, and that was actually the most bizarre statement as such. Uh, uh, since he said he never had the intention to to run for fifth term, um, so but Flika gone, uh, the constitutional process, um, uh, transition process then uh, kicked in with the nomination of an interim president, uh, who was the president of the uh, of the parliament. Um, but what we've seen in recent weeks really is that the chief of staff of the army uh, has been uh, the, 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 the key figure uh, or the key interlocutor, I would even say, um, on the side of the, um, of the, of the regime. Um, from the population side, I mean, despite Ramadan, uh, the process was still ongoing every Friday. Uh, the uh, the student movement even grew in intensity, and they continued to protest every every Tuesday. And that pressure then resulted actually just uh, on the first of June uh, to the cancellation of the next election uh, that was planned for the fourth of July to elect the new president since the current constitutional term of the interim president ends in mid-July. Um, so with those elections having been postponed, um, there is at the moment, uh, I would say, a clarity on, on how to move forward. It's seen as a, a win to some degree for, for the popular movement, but it's also an extension of the term of the current interim president who is seen as being, uh, being illegitimate. Um, so it's it's a it's a dance I would say um, between the uh, the protesters at the moment and and the chief of the army on the other uh, the other side of the table. But we haven't yet come to the stage where we are uh, sitting around the table uh, having uh, a dialogue around the transition period uh, from the side of the population and the protesters on, on every Friday on the streets of Algiers, that is too early. I'm blown away by the similarities of these two cases, Sudan and Algeria. Um, of course, Algeria hasn't had the violence that we have seen just recently in Sudan. There was a piece, Fatin, in your, a line in your piece that I really liked, which was, no revolution happens in neat, straight lines. It's a negotiation. That really rings true to, true to me. It's something that I've written about on Sudan. And so what I wanted to talk about today, now that we have that great backgrounder from Fatin, is what are the key ingredients to make a transition a success You know, that results in a civilian, democratically elected government? Johnny, you've represent the U.S. for almost four decades. You've seen this movie over and over again. And so maybe you could share with us what are the critical factors uh, that make this work, that get to a, a good uh, outcome. First of all, a commitment by all parties that a transition is required. By those who are uh, giving up and relinquishing power, as well as those uh, who are taking it over a commitment uh, by the regional uh, parties involved uh, to uh, support uh, in meaningful ways uh, political uh, transitions, uh, and uh, a commitment to move uh, towards uh, a, an established set of uh, principles 
uh, behind which uh, both sides uh, can operate. Uh, a uh, transition uh, that uh, is uh, appropriately quick uh, and not uh, too uh, awfully uh, long, uh, and a buy-in uh, in many instances uh, by the military authorities or the security authorities or, opera, uh, or operators who are giving up uh, who are giving up power. Both sides have to recognize that it is fundamentally in their interest to move forward to a political change uh, and that uh, the uh, uh, benefits are going to flow positively uh, 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 for both sides and not excessively negatively towards all those who have been a part of the old regime. Is there a uh, an example in your experience that sort of hits the mark? Is there an issue that you worked on, a country that you worked on? Let me give you examples okay. of uh, transitions uh, that people never thought uh, would happen and have, in fact, uh, occurred rather smoothly. One is Nigeria. Yeah. In June of 1998, uh, Sani Abacha, uh, one of the most ruthless military leaders uh, in Nigeria's history and one of the most ruthless recent military leaders in Africa, uh, died uh, of a heart attack. Mysteriously. Mysteriously, exactly. But within a year, within a year of his uh, departure, uh, by May of, uh, of uh, 1999, uh, Nigeria had gone through a complete uh, transformation from a authoritarian military regime uh, to a election of President uh, Obasanjo uh, as the country's uh, first uh, uh, civilian-led president uh, in probably 15 years, 16 years. And a government that, and a system that's still 20 and years later, still there. It's the longest period of civilian, uh, civil, rule. civilian rule. That was a transition that no one anticipated. Everyone thought Abacha would lead to another military dictator. It did not happen. To the north of Nigeria, in Niger, uh, a uh, military uh, coup uh, overthrew uh, President uh, Tanja. Uh, in uh, 2010. And uh, within 14 months of that military coup, uh, there was a transitional uh, government uh, that uh, held elections uh, and a civilian uh, government uh, came into power. President uh, uh, Isafu uh, was uh, elected uh, there. There are actually several more yeah. that are out there that where you have, in fact, had transitions. But I come back to that first point that I made, and that is a uh, recognition uh, on uh, the part of those uh, who are giving up power uh, as well as those who are taking over power. That is, it is in their mutual interest to have a clear resolution of the kinds of, uh, of issues that are at stake. But this is not the only place. We've also seen this in Burkina Faso. Right. We've seen it in Mali. I, I think it is important that there be quick movement 
as expeditiously as possible. I think with the exception of South Africa, long political transitions uh, 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 only create more problems over time. Than Lots more not. opportunities to sort of delay and fi- yeah. definitely. But I, you said Burkina, <laughs> which is actually my favorite transition. I don't know if people pick favorites, but I've been thinking a lot about Burkina because it's it's very similar to what we're seeing in Algeria and Sudan. Protesters out on the streets. They didn't want to see Blaise Compore, who had been power since 1987, yeah. uh, stay any longer. And eventually the military overthrew him. So to Allison, there's two things that I think I'd like to hear your thoughts on the composition of the council, of the traditional council, traditional government. It doesn't matter. What should we think about? And then, as Johnny already alluded to, uh, the the duration of the transition. Sure. So I think when you think about a transition, it's all part of a package. It's all one deal. And you need to think about the ingredients in that mix. So there's no um, right amount of time, short or long. There's no one size fits all. And it's a balance. And you want everybody invested in a system that they're generally equally unhappy with. So that's how you make a deal. I think there's three things that I would suggest um, that you think about when you kind of go through how this is going to work. So the first is what really needs to change immediately. And we're talking about kind of minimum conditions for a deal with some basic, I wouldn't even say trust, but basic level of agreement that there will be freedom of speech. You won't be shooting protesters in the street. And I think also important for the peripheries, particularly in Sudan, is that um, violence, state-sponsored violence in Darfur and Southern Kordofan and Blue Nile comes to a, a pause. Um, Second, I would say you have to think about what you need to build at a minimum for a transition to work. So you need a decision-making process that can run and provide services to the state that doesn't wait one over the other. So as you said, often civilian-led with a military check or a parliament or a council of elders or something else that provides that kind of balance. So you you are not totally stalemated, but you're stuck enough that decision-making isn't overweighted to one side. And then I think to make that system work, you need confidence building, you need checkpoints to make sure it's working, and then you need leverage often from the outside to ensure that everybody is holding up their part of the deal. So I would think one of the things that would really build confidence is the inclusion of additional voices at the table. So you've got the Sudan professionals out on the street, you've got women, the doctors association, the pilots are striking. There are more voices in Sudan besides the elite political leaders that need to be included in some way. I also think financial transparency in Sudan. So because of this kind of corruption of the system um, and you hear about this Gulf money coming in, whoever controls those resources um, will be very powerful. And that's what people are going to want to know. I think there are other things about kind of having all the partners aligned, um, talking about who can't run again that are kind of additional um, checkpoints that you can build into the system to make it kind of chug along. Um, but that's how you need to think about the package. And when the system is not chugging along, when we get to a stalemate, Fatin, what should the international community do? Um, now, when it comes then to, to, to engaging with the, with this type of, of, of revolutions, um, I think you said it well, Drew, that a lot, of, a lot of these changes need to also come from within. And I think in the short term, perhaps no engagement is the best engagement that, that, can, that one can have. Um, but there are certain situations, as we've seen now in Sudan, for instance, with very blatant 
blatant attack on civilians where I do think the international community uh, should should speak up. Um, so my key message is that timing matters. Uh, too early may actually undermine and even delegitimize the movement. So give it time and let the, 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 the population own it and carry it. Um, but, but choose certain moments of, you know, when people are attacked and, and, and certain smart areas such as the, the financial uh, flows, as I mentioned. I think those are wise words, Fajin. We're going to end it there. Thank you so much. And we'll see everyone in two weeks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks. Thanks.